Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Andrew Michael, who is the CEO of Avrio. Today, we're going to be talking about how you can use research to identify your best customers, your ideal customers, which is something I'm very excited to talk about because we are doing just that right now as we like to redo from time to time. So selfishly, uh, this is going to be a fun one for me, too. So thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Awesome. I got JH here too. Yeah, when we talk ideal customer profile, ICP, I can't help but think insane clown posse. So I'm just going to that <laughs> Every time. <laughs> focus back on the topic at hand, yeah. It's one of those acronyms as well. Like I have a slide at some point as well. It's like just this like cartoon character peeing on the wall. And it's like ICP as well because it's something. <laughs> yeah. It's in marketing, so, yeah. in SaaS, we use like way too many acronyms. Yeah. Uh, but... an, important, an important one too. Yeah. Though, so yeah. Yeah, so just to reiterate, today we're talking about ideal customer profiles and none of those other ICPs. Yeah, awesome. So we just discussed what is an ideal customer profile. We know what the acronym spells, but like really what are we talking about when we talk about an ICP? Yeah, so I mean, I think from my perspective, it really depends on the stage of growth and where you're at. And I think like this is maybe often looked in the beginning, but ultimately I think in an early stage startup, it's really like your ideal customer profile who's ever going to give you money at that point in time because <laughs> like you literally just need to survive and you need to make things work. But then I think as the, the company grows and as the product evolves, like your understanding and your definitions should be evolving constantly. And like you say, you're revisiting the work now and you're revisiting the research. I think this is just something that you should be doing all the time. And also another thing I think on this is that when we think about our ideal customer profile, if we start looking at our customers who we have today, they're a direct reflection of the product we've built and the marketing we've done up until now, but they don't always necessarily represent the best ideal customer for the business or for where the market is moving. So always thinking about these things and thinking it's like it's a constant evolution that you build on top of with your understanding over time. And it's an evolving research process, I think. In the beginning, your best customers are the people who will pay you. I imagine that doesn't ever really change, right? But it yes. changes yeah. like, you know, how you want to think about those opportunities. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I mean, in the beginning, you accept pretty much any customer. And I think from my perspective, like show host of Churn FM, we talk about like churn in the context a lot. And I think in the early days, like when you just accept anybody and everybody as a customer and you just try and acquire anyone and everyone, what ultimately ends up happening is you end up seeing that impact on churn and retention ultimately, mm -hmm. which ends up like draining your company's resources, like support ends up spending time serving customers who aren't the ideal fit. But at the early days, you really re you need that for growth and you need that to sustain the business. But then over time, you can really start to realize, okay, the time and effort uh, that we're spending serving these customers doesn't make sense for us. And we're better off getting a better grasp of who we should be serving better and then focusing on that audience. So there are times when it makes sense to fire customers. Um, yeah, yeah. That phrase always is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think about it as you're an early team and you're kind of going through this transition of we just got to find customers and then we yeah. have some critical mass and now we can start to be a little bit more intentional about which of these customers are the best fit. Like, where does that happen? Is that is there like a certain stage or scale where that tends to come in or it varies? Or how do you know when you should start thinking about this? I guess is maybe the question I'm trying to get at. I think you should always be thinking about it. Uh, so for uh, I'll use Avery as an example. Like, I think before we started the business, we already had an idea of who the ideal customer profile was. And that started as a result of early customer research that we were doing. So really just trying to dig into the pain point, into the problem we're solving. We started to formulate like which group and which audience resonated best, understood the problem most, had the biggest pain. So 
we started building the product with this ideal customer profile in mind. But then as you said, like as you start to grow and as you start to acquire new customers, you start to notice new segments and new audiences that you perhaps didn't consider. And we're busy going through this evolution now as well is starting to look at some of these other adjacent use cases, adjacent audiences and trying to see, okay, like, does this make sense for us to be serving this audience now? And it's something that I think you're always doing as part of your business, but really it starts like before you even get started building products. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not that you don't do it early on. It's that you don't have enough signal and data and probably until later on to be more confident in it. But it's something you're always thinking about and refining and, and having hypotheses around. Yeah. And I think this is something that changed like my perspective from our time at Hotjar actually is that when I joined Hotjar, it came from a previous startup that I'd founded. We were VC backed. So we had this like heavy reliance on like we needed to share data and numbers and statistics when it came to how the business was operating and running. And when I joined Hotjar, actually, like I found that for the business that had scaled, it was heavily, heavily reliant on qualitative research and just speaking mm-hmm. to customers and almost nothing on data alone. And I think the reason for this is that at early stage, the data that you have is more like noise than signal. And only when you start to hit a certain size and scale, like can data become really reliable and your best source of information, it always is your customers, but even more so at the early stage, like you really need to be speaking to your customers uh, day in and day out uh, and never lose that pulse. So I think we'll, we'll go back and forth between sort of the the what and the how and the why here, right? So what is an ICP and, you know, why does it matter and, and how do you use it? So maybe we can jump into the how do you use it for a minute because one of the things that we talk about a lot is how a lot of artifacts you get out of research, such as an ICP, ideally can be used by a lot of people in the company, a lot of different departments, maybe in different ways. But curious how you've seen an ICP actually be used by different departments and to the point about sort of different stages, your ICP is going to look a different way that might play out different ways in different stages as well. Yeah. So I think what's interesting is always like most companies go through this evolution where a lot of teams have what they think is the understanding of the ideal customer profile and Mm -hmm. they'll go to marketing and they'll have one sort of a definition. They'll go to customer success or sales and product. But at some point in time, like someone in the team says, hey, we need to get a grasp to this. We need to have a common understanding of who we're going after so that when we are using what we deem to be our ideal customer profile, we have like consistency across the board. And by that, like the ways you can use it is pretty much every team in the company can use the ideal customer profile in some form or manner. If you take marketing, for example, like understanding who you're selling to really then starts to think about the communication, the ad network channels that you're going to go through, how you're going to distribute content, thinking about the product and positioning. Like that's how marketing can really use the ideal customer profile with those insights in mind. And then it, it just flows down the chain. So sales. They, instead of spending their time trying to sell anything and everything, you give them really a good fit profile. So depending if you have the luxury with a high inbound amount of leads, like you can filter then using your ICP or when you're doing your outbound. So it's pretty much like going throughout the organization, you can find different use cases for the team to be able to use it effectively. And then what it end, ends up happening is that at the end result, you get a higher ratio and a higher proportion of the ICP that you're acquiring versus non-ICP. Uh, and overall, like what you slowly start to see over time is the significance that it has on, on the bottom line and the revenue uh, mm-hmm. for the business. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit like on inbound stuff, you know, if you can identify who's an ICP, you can route them differently and, and do important stuff there, kind of filter them 
does that mean that when you're defining an ICP, you need to do it off like characteristics that are easy to identify or like publicly available? Or should you also be thinking about like more proprietary information or data you're going to have on users as being a factor too? So I think it's it's always going to be a combination of both. And uh, so I can tell you a little bit about how we did it at Hotjar in the early days and then how that understanding evolved uh, over time. Cool. So when we first started looking into like identifying our ideal customer profile, I think the very first thing that we just did was we took a look at our own internal data and we said, let's take a cohort of users that had been with us or customers that had been with us for longer than 12 months paying and had a certain level of activity. So the activity component was the own proprietary data. We were looking at like how active were they within the product and how regularly were they using us. And then we we just use a service like Clearbit or any one of these data enrichment services that took a look at, okay, who is our uh, overall demographic? And then started breaking that down by various firmographic and demographic properties. So company size, age, Alexa rank, uh, role of the individual. Mm -hmm. And from there, you could really start to see some patterns uh, emerging from different uh, segments and different properties, individual properties themselves. And what we tried to do in the beginning, the first uh, step of this was we just said, okay, like I'm just random things now, but let's say like mid-market product managers, product designers, and like one or two different use cases. This was the, the profile. And what we slowly start to realize like over time was like, it served us well for the beginning. Like that's the data we had at hand. Like we needed some formal definition that we could go to and we could draw to. But as we grew our understanding and our learnings as well grew with that. And we slowly started to realize it was just a really like narrow view of looking at only our existing customers. Because again, like as I mentioned in the beginning, that was a direct result of the early product that we had built and uh, the, the market we had. And it also has like survivorship bias in it of the existing uh, user base. So we then slowly started to, to layer on different levels of complexity. We also at some point did some a lot of like pricing and packaging research, which a big part of that is like understanding who the buyer personas are. And through that, we actually started doing panel study. So this was like the next layer of evolution was like not only looking at our own audience, but introducing like Hotjar to a new panel who didn't know our product or service and then try to understand, okay, what were those firmographic or demographic properties that showed interest that were, had the highest likelihood to buy or the most willingness to pay? And we then could say, okay, did this audience align with our previous understanding? Are there maybe some audiences that we haven't attracted well enough yet through our product or through our marketing that we could be going after because there's a big opportunity in the willingness to pay or the likelihood to buy? And then it just like every stage we started layering on a new understanding of our customers and, and new learnings. Uh, not to go on a, a long monologue, but I think what it ended up uh, getting to in the end, what we realized was that having like a fixated definition of uh, like, this is who they are, they're like uh, product managers, this role, that is not necessarily the best way to go about using the ICP because you end up like negating and ruling out a, a large uh, portion of your audience that could be a good fit. So what we ended up doing was looking at building together a scoring model to understand to what degree do they fit the ideal customer profile. And through that research, what we ended up doing was like, let's say you had, we found that product managers perhaps were like much more engaged. They stuck around for longer. They would get a three points in the scoring model. Whereas maybe let's say digital marketer, some in the medium range, they would get a two and then like other roles like customer success would get a zero or a one. And we did this for each one of the firmographic properties that we had and each one of the things. And we based it not only off of, we based it off a panel, we based it off retention, we based it off recently acquired customers. So what ratio made up the recently acquired? And we also based it off of conversion rates. So we 
we took a cohort that was six months old and we looked, okay, out of everyone that signed up there, who ended up converting? And were there any sort of firmographic or demographic properties that stood out that converted better than most? And again, that could have been fed back to marketing and say, hey, like there was only a small amount of these uh, this, these properties that we got through in this cohort, but they had really, really strong uh, signals and they were really strong conversion uh, rates at the end. And then we took all of that data and ultimately what we ended up having was the scoring model. And it was, it was quite beautiful in the end because you could see like as the score increased, so did net MRR retention and so did overall revenue they were generating from these, which is ultimately the end goal that we're trying to achieve. There's a lot to dig into there, which is yes. great. I have so many questions <laughs> for you. But one of them was, you know, if you think of the ICP as a binary or not, and it sounds like no, that the scoring allows you to think of it on a spectrum of, let's say, zero to much more than zero. And and so I'm curious, how do you use that score, right? So, you know, presumably you would want to, you know, market to and find people with higher scores, give them more of a sort of velvet rope experience once you've identified them. But how do you think about, you know, breaking up how you address these sort of different tiers of score, or different ranges of score? Yeah. So even though you still look at it as a range, you still do form groups within those ranges. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's not to say that if somebody doesn't fit all five criteria, that they're not an ideal customer profile. So mm-hmm. I think that's sort of one of the mistakes we made in the beginning was just like, okay, they had to fit these five criteria. If they didn't, like if they weren't more than five years old, they're not a good business fit for us. But they might have been like extremely fast growing startup and uh, they would have made an excellent customer because they didn't have one of the five or one right. of the 10 or whatever it was. So one is like, you still definitely want to have this uh, understanding of who the team thinks is the ideal customer profile, like who they are as, as a general, as a whole, but then having them as a range and a spectrum then allows you to sort of qualify leads a little bit better. So one of the first ways we really started using it was in our lead qualification scores for sales team. So the scoring model then allowed them to say, okay, uh, if the score was below five, like we're not going to try book demos with these companies. If it was between five to 10, we would. Uh, and then if it was like 10 plus, like we really want to be pushing to try and book demos with these companies. So this really allowed them then to have clarity on like to what level of degree do we want to to be going into driving sales. The same thing again on marketing as well is just that score itself. You could end up seeing, okay, like which campaigns we're driving higher acquisition of certain levels of scores. And then you could then dive into and see, okay, like what was driving that score at the end of it as well. But so I think there's many, many ways that you can filter then that down as well into support and to other areas of the business. Cool. And on on the scoring itself, you kind of gave the example of, you know, maybe this job title gets a three, this job title gets a two and, you know, zero, one and stuff. How much of like coming up with the like weighting and the score scale and stuff for all the different criteria is like an art versus science thing? Like, is it something where you just kind of have to get started and be like, we kind of have a gut feel that, you know, job title is pretty important? Or are you doing something more like a stricter analysis to come up with like the scales and the weighting of the different factors? It's a combination of both. So it's strict analysis in the terms of, so what we would do is, let's say we're looking at retention uh, now and we would want to say like, who has the highest retention? We would just take a property and see, okay, how uh, does company size impact retention? And we'd do like solo people, like one man companies, like two to 10, 10 to 50, 50 plus. And then we see what does retention look like for those individual segments. Then we'll take the same thing and we would look at conversion rates. So like we take the cohort and we see out of that cohort, the size like one person company or two to 10 thing, how many of those converted? 
look at recently acquired customers. So we would take these different and then the panel study as well. And then you from there, you get to start to see a pattern and a trend, like which ones end up emerging better than others across all four vectors. And then from there, it's like giving a scoring. And the scoring then is like based off of the data, but you need to somehow like use your intuition and gut feel sometimes because there may be a little bit of conflicts between what you see maybe on retention and what you see on the acquisition front. And then those dials and those levers you play with. But you can ultimately see like if you've done things right at the end is like when you map out your entire user base against the scoring model and then you map it against verticals like revenue and uh, retention. Mm -hmm. And you ideally want to see this nice looking slope that increases as score increases. How often, you know, you talked about updating your ACP and your scoring sort of regularly or constantly. What is your recommendation in terms of how to do that? Is it you pick up the pace as you scale or? Yeah. So I think like this exercise, we probably revisited every year at Hotshot. And I think it depends on the stage and growth. Like I think for our stage and early stage now, like we're constantly evolving our understanding of the market. Like we religiously reviewing it and we're updating the understanding of it i think as you start to hit scale you have the luxury of data like things get a little bit more predictable in the system uh, that's when you can slowly like you don't it doesn't need to be as frequent like as we are now but at least like i would say yearly to twice a year it needs to be something that needs to be revisited that needs to be edited but it should rather be seen as more of like a living organism that evolves as your understanding evolves over time and having a central uh, way for teams to be able to contribute new learnings to it. So sales is on customer conversations day in and day out. Like they're learning new things. The market's evolving. The climate's changing. Like So it's always important to be keeping like a pulse on who the ideal customer profile is because it can really shift quite rapidly as well when different market conditions maybe present themselves or new technology emerges. Like There's many, many different reasons that can evolve who you're targeting at any given time. You had called out the survivorship bias of like being something to be mindful of. And that was kind of where my mind went from an early part in this conversation. I'm curious how you think about that. So you have the situation of these customers are doing great, retaining them really highly and stuff. These people are churning out. So, you know, you start to fixate on the ideal people who are maybe, you know, the highest retention and stuff. But like there are probably things you could do or consider prioritizing, investing in to, to change that churn behavior of this different cohort. And like, who's owning that part of it? Is it like product needs to identify those opportunities and make the case? And then if you see the behavior change, it comes into the ICP or like, what's the order of events and how do you make sure that you don't, you know, get too narrow-minded? Get too. I think that's actually where the panel comes in really helpful is that you're presenting your product or service to a totally new audience. And then you're trying to understand, okay, is there an audience that we're perhaps not serving today that we could be doing a better job of? And mm-hmm. then, like, if you do see the opportunity then, then, yes, there's definitely the, the role of user research, the role of product to really dig into those different use cases, to dig into those audiences and try to understand, is there a bigger or better opportunity for us out there? And another area I think as well is also good to look, is even just taking a look at some things like Google Trends. I think we did this uh, as well at Hotjar at some point and really tried to understand, okay, where was the market heading? Like, uh, how did we see things evolving over time? And were we serving the right segment for the way that the market was evolving at that point? So I think there's there's different factors that you can look to uh, when it comes to trying to understand, okay, are we serving the right audience? And uh, is there perhaps maybe a big opportunity that we've just neglected or maybe our marketing hasn't spoken to or our product hasn't been built for yet? Yeah, it, this obviously, it gets into business strategy, right? Because anyone at any stage, no matter how big or small, is dealing with finite resources, right? And And part of what 
an ICP allows you to do is to focus, right? We can't serve everyone. We can't serve the entire market of every human being on earth. Um, so we need to focus either a lot or a little bit within, within that. And yeah, I'm curious how you use some of this data or the ICP to make a call between say, you know, we're not at a hundred percent saturation in our identified market or ICP. We yeah. could get more there. Right. But we see this emerging other audience that we think we could serve better and making those sort of decisions of, you know, going deeper versus expanding. Is there yeah. research here that you do that can help you make those calls or is that just a, a business decision? I think those are incredibly hard decisions yeah. to make yeah. and yeah. they always feel like very big risky gambles uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to it. Like yeah. it's like, do you double down on something that's working or do you try mm-hmm. and go after something new? And I think like, you can build conviction through research and uh, through speaking to customers, like uh, continuously, like getting a pulse and feel what's in the market. But I think ultimately that's just like, it, it comes down to a business decision that yep. needs to be made. It's like, do we want to double down or do we like want to continue playing in the space that we're in today? Yeah. And then once you've made that decision, you can use this sort of work to then really identify those audiences and, and the hard work of understanding what they care about and how they buy and all those sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there is a kind of, um, or I guess actually, let me ask it a different way: is how much do you think about like the total addressable market as part of ICP? So like the, the we have these customers, they're great, we retain them at a high rate, they pay us a ton, but there's not that many of them. Like, should they be our ICP? Is that is that part of it, or is that a separate exercise? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a part of it as well. Is like you want to understand how big is the opportunity because if there aren't many of your ideal customer profiles, then it, it's not ideal. So you ultimately want to be ensuring that as well, that when you're defining your ideal customer profile, that the segment and the audience is big enough and there is a big enough market for you to go after for it to make sense. Because mm-hmm. like Aaron said, like you really need to pick focus and you need to say, okay, this is who we're going to be serving. This is who we're building. And if you're going to invest all that time and companies, resources and energy, you need to be sure that, okay, there is room to grow within that space. And it's not going to be something where like six months or a year or two years down the line, you're scratching your heads and saying, okay, what now? And on that as well, I think at some point, like Hotjar, we did an exercise where we had defined our ICP, but what we also did like for focus to go in further and something that we uh, we got from Reforge, they've got some really great uh, courses and is the idea of this anti-persona. So like, mm-hmm. who are you not serving and who is a bad fit? So just as much as like you want to understand like who the ideal is, it also really helps the team gravitate and like set an understanding of who they're going after when they know who they shouldn't be going after as well and who they Mm -hmm. shouldn't be uh, spending time and energy on because then ultimately like if you have both sides you understand who we're serving and who we shouldn't be serving like everything else you do like the way you handle support or the way you produce content or the different channels like everything just becomes so much more clearer and you're able to then double down on what's really going to work awesome we talked a a little bit about this before but you know we're saying you're kind of grouping together the different scores and the different levels. So I'm curious, like what you've seen this look like and, you know, companies you've worked with in terms of, do you have like tier one, tier two, tier three, and are they sort of groups of, you know, person level personas combined with firmographic companies or like, what's the, the artifact you might end up with here in terms of this is our ICP or constellation of ICPs and anti-ICPs. And then we're going to build out some some playbooks, some you know ways that we're going to work with these different groups once we've identified Amazing. them. Yeah. So I think the, the first thing is you would end up getting to like a, a 
generic ICP. So you're mm-hmm. going to say like it's mid-market SaaS businesses between two to 500 employees and maybe a certain spe- like specific vertical industry that you're going after. So I think you still get to that end result. Then you can say, okay, like this is our key, like our main ideal customer profile. And you might have maybe like one or two others uh, that uh, run tangential to that that fit in uh, with it. So you still do the exercise of like the grouping and you say, okay, this is who we're going after. But you're mindful that you're not like fixated that you need to hit every one of those criteria in order to be qualified and, and to meet the needs of the thing. So it, it just starts uh, like that to begin with. And then you use the scoring as a way to see like to what degree uh, do they fit and do they meet the needs on that end. One thing we like to poke on usually with this stuff is what do you see when teams do this poorly? Like they go out and they try to do ICP and they end up with something that's not very impactful or useful. Is it that they you know, make the wrong inferences off the data, they overcomplicate the scoring, they don't come up with an artifact or a way of referring to it internally? Like what are the things where this can go wrong and not be useful despite good intentions? I definitely think overcomplicating is one of those ways that you can like analysis paralysis where you spend way too many much time, you have way too much data at hands that you don't know what to do with it uh, afterwards. And I think the best ones in, in like projects that I've been involved in as well, working with other companies with identifying ideal customer profile is really like when you can get to like three or four characteristics that clearly define like what's going to make a good fit. And then from there, those three or four tend to be uh, really actionable as well. So you can get to the end of it. So like one of the, the big indicators we found early on at Hotshow was like the single biggest indicator if a customer was going to become successful with us or not was their Alexa rank. And it seems very obvious. It's like if a, com- if a company has a really low Alexa rank, they have a lot of traffic and uh, they made a good fit. But it was such a simple metric that allowed like for optimization to begin with. And in the early days, we used different services and we tried different tools out there that analyze all the different parameters and then try to put together like an overly complicated scoring model that ultimately didn't produce much results. But that was like one of the very first instrumentations of the scoring model was we just looked at what was their Alexa rank. And that's something that's very, very uh, powerful because it's very easy for the team to understand. It's very easy for everybody to actually action and to use when it comes to like analyzing who they are, where they're coming from, was something that you could easily go then and take a look at, okay, what do the top 1 million Alexa sites look like? Uh, What are their industries? What are they serving? Like, so it really adds a lot of value uh, from that perspective. So I think the, the thing I've seen is like when we, tried to like overcomplicate things like that's when it's hard for the team to understand like what does all this mean and how do we use this but the simpler uh, you can get these things I think the better because they need to be adopted by everyone in the company and the worst scenario you can be in is when like you've overcomplicated things and then people just go on with their own route anyway and they end up having their own individual definitions and classification systems which ultimately like gets people fighting against each other instead of working together. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's sort of the the Gaul's law phenomenon, right? I don't know if you all are familiar with that one, but the uh, a, a complex yeah. system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked, and then a complex mm-hmm. system designed from scratch never works and cannot be patched up to work is like mm-hmm. the maxim. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's very true for a lot of things, but it feels like kind of what you're getting at is you yeah. need to have something that's working and gets traction, and then you're going to revisit, you know, regularly, so it'll it'll get more complex, but. Don't jump in yeah, the I, I've been extremely guilty of like overcomplicating things uh, to start and then like learning the hard way. They're just like the simplest solution always and then iterate from there. 
What did you say was the law again? Uh, Gaul's law. Uh, Gaul's law. Yeah, John Gaul. Gaul. It's like a famous like systems book. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good one. It's true for a lot of product work, but I think this thing yeah. also lends itself to it. Well, because I think it, you know the problems always seem very complicated, right? It's like, ah, how are we going to double our revenue this year? And so it's like, clearly right, right. we need a complicated solution, but that's not the case. Not well, the and case. I think sometimes yeah. right, you want the making it complex makes it feel more like valid almost, right? It's almost totally. like there's like some theater to it. Like, look research. at how much work and yeah. effort went into this. Yeah. It, it's It's got to be good, right? And so yeah. there's that trap too. So what do you, you talked about this a little bit, but so you, the I think the idea of the anti-ICP is really interesting. So what do you do with those people? You just like, put a big X on your website <laughs> when they try to create an account people. or just be really mean to them, uh, ignore them. Like, what do you do with folks that kind of fall outside of the folks you want to focus on? Yeah, so I don't think you ever want to be mean or, or <laughs> not, <laughs> alienate, not good business practice. Yeah, yeah, alienate people coming to you. But I think it just helps give clarity on how you serve these customers. And so like an example that came, for example, like let's say at Hotjar, we had one of the cases in the early days, the anti-persona was engineers. This was this evolved over time and changed, but it wasn't going to be a tool that they could use for debugging, like if their app had broken. So what that meant was that like when we thought about features, then like we weren't going to prioritize any feature requests we got that meant like how do we debug or when we mm-hmm. produced support documentation, like this was not going to be a use case that we wanted to let people know how they could do it. And so it just means like it, it further deprioritizes those use cases like, and it gives clarity to the team like, okay, well, I, I get this in support requests a lot. Like what should I do with this? Like, And then the easy answer is, sorry, this is not a use case that uh, we currently support uh, Hotjar. If it does change in the future, we can let you know. So there's ways that you can still like uh, come to the table with like, trying to be supportive, but ultimately like just being transparent with the end user and saying, okay, this is not what the, the product has been built for. If you figure out a way, like let us know, we'd love to to hear any suggestions, but it's not something we have immediately on the roadmap or something that we're going to be supporting. Yeah. And that's a great point because, you know, people might very well stumble upon, especially with product-led growth or just easy to use products and they stumble upon and like, great, this product's going to be great for me. And they start having a really bad experience. And for someone to come and just tell them, it's like, Look, sorry, we didn't build this product for you. Is you know, it's a really good service to that user. Maybe they can go find something better for their use case, or like you said, yep. maybe eventually they will be the use case. But you're not doing anyone any favors by keeping bad fit customers around, trying to bend it into their will, right? Exactly, and and that ultimately, like what ends up happening is it, it does it backfires. Is that like people then the word of mouth goes and like right. this product bad is crap. Word of mouth. Like yeah. I used it and it doesn't do anything and like. Yes, but it wasn't built for you to begin with, but we just didn't explain that to you clearly or we didn't uh, communicate that effectively. So, uh, yeah, definitely think as well. And as you said, like in product-led businesses where like anybody can just get in, they can try like the the switching costs or the the ability to like kick the tires is very, very easy. Being upfront with that and the way you communicate really, really helps like avoid that negative word of mouth that you really don't want to be getting. What are some of the best things you've seen happen in companies who have done a good job with building and innovating and iterating on their ICPs. Retention uh, goes up. Uh, I think this is like a big, big thing as well. Like through ChurnFM, I've interviewed like over 180 guests now from some of like the fastest growing SaaS businesses. And definitely like a key thing that stands out in all of them is they have a really, really good understanding of who their ideal customer profile is. There's strong alignment in the organization. 
Everybody's mm-hmm. building for their use cases, working towards it. So I think the ultimate end goal is that you have happy customers that end up sticking around with you for a long time uh, and don't leave because you get to understand their problems deeply, like you can empathize with them like entirely. And then the whole organization really has this good in-depth knowledge that they can serve them better. Call that a little bit. Um, one method that can be useful is you know having a panel of like prospective users, non-users, getting that signal from them through conversations. Are there other uh, research methodologies that prove useful when you're trying to like identify your ICP? Yep. So I think there's always so the panel is typically done like with surveys from that perspective. So it's more like on the quantitative. Uh, side, but you're still trying to collect uh, qualitative insights. There are different other mechanisms, obviously always use interviews, like number one, I think on my list as well for gathering like really unique uh, insights. Uh, And then there's different channels, I think that you can explore as well. So there's like really great Slack channels and Slack groups out there where you can gather insights and you can gather knowledge. I think you can also like when you're looking to try and understand which segments aren't being served uh, well, or you could be doing a better job of, even sometimes like leaning over and looking at uh, competitors and seeing, okay, what are some of the requests that are coming in through their product roadmaps and uh, the thing? What are some of the complaints that you're perhaps seeing on sites like G2 Crowd? And is there perhaps an opportunity where your product or service is doing better or an audience there that's being neglected? Uh, mm-hmm. So there are quite a lot of different channels that you can uh, take a look to, but I would say like nothing beats like speaking to customers and really trying to like speak to as many people even outside of your customer base as well but that match the profile we know how you can find people like that yeah i I have an idea as well (laughs) (laughs) churn uh, the churn fm that's your podcast yeah that's it I've, I've, i've definitely listened to it it's good why churn and not retention yeah, I think just playing on the pain a bit more. So when I decided to start the podcast, like the idea was I wanted to start a business actually, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do yet. So I thought, let me pick a problem that I know if you ask any CEO what they would pay to solve the problem, they would say pretty much everything in the bank because they know it's going to pay back in compounding interest. So double down on the pain, I think that was uh, yeah. the reason. Yeah, nice. makes sense. We hear, I, I find it very interesting when we hear we hear that internally too. You hear a lot more talk of churn than retention, and obviously they're opposite sides of the same thing. So exactly, and uh, yeah. the best way to solve uh, churn is actually to focus on retention. Is right, not exactly. And I, I, it's weird right. because right. it's like the first right. place people say like we need to solve churn. They're like, okay, let's go interview people that are exiting and ask them why they've churned. Like that's not really where you want to be focusing. You're gone. You're gone, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What is what is making those that are successful with your product? Like that's where you need yeah. to focus your time and energy. So totally. Awesome. Well, any parting advice for folks listening on their ICP work? I, I would just say like it's a never ending process and it's something that's like the earlier you can get your teams aligned and working together to define it uh, and understand that it's not just like a qualitative uh, piece of work that needs to be done or a quantitative, like you need to have uh, the what with the why. And this is something we talked a lot about at Hotshow. So like data is going to tell you what's happening in your business and then speaking to customers is going to tell you why. So the the exercise, it's important to have sales and success uh, come to the party with this because they're the ones speaking and they're on the front lines all the time. You need to have data, you need to have product. So an exercise, if you're thinking about doing it, it, it really needs to be like a company-wide initiative and uh, it, there can be teams like user research leading it itself. But Having this as a company alignment and bringing things together is like one of the most powerful things I think you can do in your business. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great chatting.